Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's David, if we haven't met, and uh, good to have you with us. Um, it becomes relevant to you to know the internet's down at the moment, and so those who are trying to live stream, I think, aren't able to. Uh, so that might be just something that comes up in conversation during the week. Uh, but we plan to keep that continuing, obviously, week, week to week. Uh, let's pray now as we come to this um, pretty spectacular part of God's Word. Father, we thank you for speaking and speaking through stories, accounts of uh, your great works done in the past, not so that they can be history lessons, uh, but so that they can be real windows as your living and piercing and true word, uh, just as true for us today as it was then. And so we pray that this encounter you had with Saul will be something we learn from and are changed by. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a radio announcer recently was talking about artists that polarise people. And he was saying that people either love or hate Neil Diamond. Really, I thought? Uh, as someone growing up with Neil Diamond songs and enjoying those, I found that a bit hard to believe that anyone would dislike him. Of course, growing up, there was also little debates over Coles versus Woolworths or Ford versus Holden or left versus right in politics. Friends, we come today to the question of questions. Of all the questions that divide the world, I can't think of a more significant one than the one brought to the world by the church. The question of, what do you make of Jesus? For the elderly or for the dying, it's immensely important, of course, but so too for the child in the scripture class, the youth not yet coming to youth group the intern looking to make it in the corporate world, the inner west family working out their family vision and what they want their home to be like, the retiree wondering how her retirement days might be most wisely spent. There are going to be many circumstances and forces shaping our decisions in these stages of life, but the biggest one of all is that blinding question from the Lord Jesus himself. What do you make of me? What does your life say you make of me? I've had the privilege of sitting with a dying man who for most of his life had kept Jesus at a distance. He would have always called himself a Christian, but at the very end of his life, uh, this was crystallised for him as he was in a Presbyterian aged care home where he, he saw again the supreme relevance of Jesus just before meeting him. I read John 3.16 with him, and he, he said with bright eyes, David, I believe that. I believe it. He kept saying, I believe that. Or I read Philippians with him, at the verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that if you hold on to Christ now, then the next life you go to be with him. David, I believe that. I believe it. And he was almost getting excited, even with his, his frail health. Neil Diamond, Woolworths, Coles, Liberal Labor, who cares next to that question and for this man at that time and for these big decisions of life and our priorities? Well, today we'll focus on the first part of Acts chapter 9 that was read for us, which picks up from the end of chapter 7, and we went back to see and remind ourselves of some of Paul's activities, his satanic opposition to God's movement in the world. What will the risen Lord of the church do as this new form of opposition comes, this violent wolf harming the flock. What the Lord will do 
in a split second is change the way Paul would answer that question. The question of all questions. What do you make of Jesus? Well, firstly, in verses 1 to 9, we see that the Lord tames and reorients Saul. Paul was literally, verse 1, if you have your Bibles there, breathing threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. It's a strong, heated phrase. You can almost feel the breath. Breathing threats and murder. With Stephen now extinguished, Saul is looking to contain more Stephens that continue to leak out of Jerusalem and into other Jewish communities and synagogues. We're seeing terrible images now coming out of Ukraine. And so too the photos that would be coming out of Acts chapter 9 would have been difficult and distressing for children's talks. He's tearing families apart, parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters, imprisoned and killed simply for naming Christ. But these are, as verse 1 I think gently reminds us, these are the Lord's disciples that Saul is harming here. And so a violent wolf is about to be stopped in his tracks in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And no doubt there was disorientation, confusion. What might have been a question? What on earth? What's going on? I'm persecuting these wayward Jews who call themselves Christians. You say I'm persecuting you? The big question then about who Jesus is is about to be addressed in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus to you, Paul? Saul. Like the English word Lord, it could be, who are you, sir? Um, But I take it Saul was instantly aware of the divine presence here. Um, Moses had this blinding light. Abraham as well had encounters with the divine presence. In the Gospels we saw it. Paul was there when Stephen sensed and experienced this presence of God, this theophany. I take it he was aware of the divine presence that the Lord is addressing him with lots of confusion mixed in at the same time. Confusion, but not much room for debate. A violent, principled sinner, exposed to pure goodness, arresting knowledge, truth. The spirit who Jesus said will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment in John chapter 17 is here going about his wonderful work of convicting a sinner of sin. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Whom am I persecuting? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And right there in that split second, Saul was seemingly dumbstruck. His past, I take it, flashing before his eyes. His present and future all wrapped up in the person standing in front of him, in the brightest of lights. His internal processor has gone into meltdown. The scriptures he'd grown up absorbed in, the God he had limited to having singularity only, one God, but no room for plurality, no room for God's Messiah who would act and speak on God's behalf and do all kinds of things that only God can do. Now, I cringe at the OMG uh, reaction to everything in our culture in the recent, say, the last 10 years, but here is the most legitimate, reverential OMG Oh my God, oh my God, spoken by a 
pious, monotheistic Jew. Oh my God, Jesus. Friends, I wonder if you've come to that statement in your Christian journey personally and clearly. I've met people who get to the end of their lives and been in church all their lives and never really it's dawned on them that Jesus is God in his fullness. But it's important that you do, and and today is the day you can do that. To call on Jesus as Lord is to call on him as fully God, not as less. That we can say, Jesus, I know you to be God, my God. For Saul, it was just as these mad Christians had been saying. Stephen was right. I guess we've all felt disoriented, like when you visit another house and you wake up in the dark, and it just takes a little while to think, now, now where am I again? Uh, we were in Armadale last weekend, and it's darker there than it is in Sydney, I was reminded. And so I woke up, and where am I again? And, and where's the doorway? For Saul... Uh, though he could see physically with his eyes, he'd been living in spiritual darkness. And now this brightest of bright lights has appeared, physically blinding him for spiritual enlightenment. Now, we were away for about three days in Armadale and Walker. That's not a lot of time, but that's about the amount of time Saul had to begin to get his, uh, his head around this biggest life question. What do you make of Jesus, Saul? Saul of Tarsus learned that day who God really is. Divine honours go to Jesus of Nazareth. I am Jesus, says the Lord. And you'll notice as the passage goes on, Ananias refers to the Lord and to Jesus interchangeably. He thinks of Jesus when he thinks of the Lord. And so if you as a seasoned Christian think of Jesus as less than God, it's time for that great light that great reality to enter your world, your horizons. As one author puts it, if Jesus is not God incarnate, he has no salvation for us. Morality, yes, an example, an exhortation, all of it very exalted, but no salvation. If he were merely God's suffering servant, but not God's son, his death could not atone for our sins, nor could he impart the Holy Spirit to anyone nor incorporate all the millions of his believers into himself. There's a power in the name of Jesus and in the person of Jesus that doesn't belong to any mere human, even a great prophet acting on God's behalf. And so, friends, it must be, it should be, by definition, something that dawns on us as every Christian, that Jesus is Lord, and that there is much power in the recognition of this. The second monumental truth comes in the second part of Jesus' statement. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it dawns on Paul that when I persecute the church, I'm persecuting the Lord at the same time. Lord, you say they are you. You take their treatment so personally It's the kind of thing you might expect Jesus to say about his band of disciples when he walked with them in Galilee. Yes, they were close friends. He he was one with them. But it may not be something you think of as Jesus in the way he thinks of us. Um, I remember in Mongolia when a caring missionary husband got visibly upset 
unusually upset when his wife was being mistreated. I'd never seen him take on a cause the way he took that cause on. He didn't put it in these words, but it was something like, I won't stand by and have her treated that way. Treat me that way, okay, but you won't be treating my wife that, that way while I'm here. If you do this, you do it through me, you talk to me about this as well. And it was a wonderful, loving, protective loyalty that seemed to be on display. Just so, whatever we are enduring, Bride of Christ, we have a husband who so cares for us. As Jesus may have prayed to the Father, so help me God, I will be there, God, and they will be my people. It brings a lovely connection, doesn't it, between that man of Jesus and that abstract view or idea a lot of people have of God. The two are brought wonderfully together when we realise Jesus is Lord. How could Saul move on from this? Peter denied the Lord three times and wept bitterly about it. But Saul's behaviour has been on another level. What's he going to do with this recognition? Sometimes just saying sorry doesn't seem to cut it, does it? I remember as a young adult going out with my engineer friend to a field in Camden where I grew up, and he'd carefully constructed this really large, impressive remote control aeroplane out of balsa wood. I didn't dare ask him for a turn. I just watched on in admiration, and after a while he hesitantly but persistently said, David, you have a turn. You have a turn. What could possibly go wrong, right? Uh, if I brought it down for a rough landing, he'd be able to fix it, right? Well, not this time. Within about a minute of having the controls, I brought the plane down at great speed, swooping down, and somehow perfectly lined up the aeroplane's nose with a telegraph pole. Uh, there was no fuel on board, and so there weren't any flames, but there was a pretty sickening noise that I heard, the wings bending around the pole and a dry explosion of one plane into countless pieces. And so all I could do was just hand back the control, now useless to him, and sorry, I'm really sorry. We picked up the pieces quietly and had an even quieter trip home. But this is just a toy. Saul had made a furious mess of his own life and ruined the lives of others in God's name. Sorry, Lord Jesus, is that what you're going to say? The wonderful thing, almost too good to be true, is that a simple, sincere, sorry, Lord Jesus does change everything. Isn't that wonderful? His sorry, Lord, isn't even recorded. But he had reconciliation with God recognition of sin, a spiritual rebirth, life to live as never before, with God now with us, for us, within us, around us and before us. God as never before had entered into his life. Soon he'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit and so have that inner knowledge of God. Saul is under new management, new heart, renewed mind, the same God, but an enlarged, truer version of who he always has been, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so after Peter messed up three times, Jesus honoured Peter and forgave him, in part by commissioning him with an important role and a threefold instruction. Look after my sheep, Peter. 
feed my lambs, look after my sheep. So too, Paul will be, Saul will be kindly forgiven and his restoration confirmed through a commissioning to take this wonderful news of forgiveness that Paul understands very well and take it into the, the world of the nations, out of Jewish control and into the world. Well, before we go there, in verse 7, we read almost comically of Saul's deserved humiliation. He needs to be humbled. The self-sufficient young man with the violent plans he had for Damascus, this man finds himself now lying on the ground and needing a hand and shuffling in the darkness towards the very city he went to persecute. Verse 7. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. I mean, that would be shocking, wouldn't it? What's going on with Saul? Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Kill and persecute Christians from this day forward? Jesus doesn't need to say, stop it. Just revealing who he is is enough. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Enough darkness for you, Saul. I'm bringing you into my light. And I've got beautiful things in store for you. Beautiful, though difficult, as you take up a cross after me. It's good to know, isn't it, that the most unlikely convert to Christianity can become a convert in a split-second decision of our Lord and just a moment of revelation can do it. Indeed, Saul's conversion is another compelling layer of witness that the founders of Christianity didn't set out to deceive the masses and somehow get away with it and persuade everybody that someone's alive after dying. But here we have the church's greatest opponent following Christ without their intervention. Even at the end of his life, Paul was so grateful for this. He wrote to his friend Timothy, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ, uh, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. Or to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that Jesus appeared to him, and then he said, but I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul was given instructions and direction from that point on. Jesus tells him where to go immediately next. But for the rest of his life, it's this vision of Jesus, this awe and deep gratitude for a fresh start that inspired Paul's incredible life rather than more commands and instructions, another law to replace the old law. What do you make of Jesus, friends? Do you see Jesus almost as clearly as Saul and Paul did? Do you sense Jesus' grace for you in some way on a spectrum towards what Paul understood of Jesus' grace to him? What does it mean for you to say something like Paul does there? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It will not be in vain, God's grace towards me, as I choose how I'm going to live my life. 
You might say today, I'm sorry for my sin. And I know you don't want me here on earth just to mark time. There must be something more meaningful, this kingdom of God that I've come to understand. And so, Lord, reinvigorate me. Clarify how I might really love and serve you. In my office, I have a picture of Martin and Catherine Luther on my wall. I brought it along. Got something of a stern look on his face. Um, I take it in those days too, you didn't often smile at the, the artist. But there he is, and I have him up on my wall as a reminder uh, for me as I go about my work, remembering what was important to him and what was important to me. I had another pastor friend who came from a construction background and he used to work with his work boots on, just to remind him that, you know, work, ministry is work and you, you keep working. I'll put it here. So there he is. I know he, he appreciated the gospel. His life was transformed by the gospel. As a monk, he tried to satisfy the righteous demands of the law, as he understood it, and, and reach the righteousness of God in his own merit. Until that day when the grace of God appeared to him and he understood that righteousness comes simply by faith, by saying yes to the Lord Jesus. And so I want that message uh, in all that I do. And so it doesn't hurt to have him looking over my shoulder as I go about my working day. Uh, one of Luther's dreams is, in his life was he dreamed that the accuser came in and set before him afresh all of his sins. Luther admitted them all without di- denying any or seeking to justify himself in any way. But he also scrawled across that list, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I don't deny the sin and I love the forgiveness. Luther, like Saul, was freed from sin to live for Jesus. But this Luther picture here is beyond a symbol. It's just, it's powerless. It's ink on paper inside a frame. How much more compelling to not only be aware of the Lord Jesus' nearness, his presence, his influence. I could put a picture of, a so-called picture of Jesus in a frame. But instead I have him near I have Jesus himself present and influential with divine power and authority. It almost makes me want to put Luther away compared to this reality. Jesus, not a picture, not a bystander, not even a cheering crowd, but personally, lovingly working his purposes out in me as I go about my work and you go about your daily lives. This week, as I was trying to think, what does it mean to have Jesus near and the Lord near? I was reading Psalm 85, and I noticed they have the Lord near as well. It might be Psalm 86. Coming from a self-help culture, as we do, where we assume things like our own mental health are up to us and our attitude or our relationship with God are all up to us, listen to these verses. Gladden the soul of your servant. Does God do even that? The Lord Jesus gladdened my soul this day? Is that something we would say? Or more prayers to his present Lord that can be ours too were, listen to my plea for grace. His God is near. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. 
I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. How much more we who know God in the person of the Lord Jesus can know and approach the God who is all-powerful in our lives. Wrong-headed, pitiful Saul became Paul and moved from weakness into strength, verse 19, and then to greater strength, verse 22, as the Holy Spirit empowered him. What he saw that day and what we are seeing this morning became his life's message, verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is who? Jesus is the Son of God. Now, yes, Paul is Paul, and you are you, and he lived then, and you live now. But so, too, truth is truth. You may have a very different life from Paul's to live, but your life is one to be lived with the same unshakable certainty about who Jesus is. You probably won't have a vision like that, but you do have a word like this. You do have this window into this very real encounter with the living God. And the extent to which you take that image seriously, that vision seriously, that window seriously, the extent to which you believe it is the extent to which it will change and transform your life as well. People of faith. What will your life make of Jesus? I was with a friend a couple of weeks ago and he said, you Christians are so passive. I like that he felt free to say that. Why don't you demonstrate more and more and make more noise in society. Uh, He's an American as well. He thinks Aussies generally are passive and just let things happen. But he said, lobby against uh, reduced freedoms and present your issues more in the media. We do have Christian lobbyists and perhaps there is room for more, but more importantly, we have Jesus as Lord of the church and sovereign over the decisions of governments. And I think we know that. He tells us not so much to lobby, but to declare his saving, sanctifying gospel. When pastors in Siberia or Victoria are imprisoned, Christ is present. When we're lonely or bored or tempted by faithless choices, Christ himself calls us by his spirit to choose his present and better path. When he puts a ministry or a person on our conscience, His spirit can embolden and energize us to take those steps. As one author says about this passage, it relates to us as a church family, as a community. I cannot claim to love the Lord Jesus and refuse to love his saints. You can't be a closet Christian, separated from brothers and sisters and actively engaging in each other's lives. Or he continues, I cannot claim to be identified with him and refuse to be identified with his people. His presence leads us from selfish impulses towards a stronger church community focus, more patience and grace with each other, a gospel alertness, a kingdom heartbeat. He's come, he's saving, he's returning. So I ask you to close, in closing, what might Jesus say if he appeared to you? under the intense brightness of his holy appearing, you say, who are you, Lord? What does he say in response? I am Jesus, whom you are... What word comes to mind for you?
You are what? I am Jesus whom you are trusting. That's a good conclusion to that sentence. I am Jesus and my spirit is inspiring your service, your love, your sacrificial loyalty. I am Jesus. You show me hospitality when you show it to my disciples. I am Jesus, the name on your lips, as your lips learn to be bold for me. Amen. We're now going to sing a couple of songs in response, but uh, just to let you know as well, after the song, there'll be time for questions if you have any questions you'd like to um, raise.